0: Alright, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bodner, joined by Rich Hoffman on the Sixers Beat, a part of the Athletics Podcast Network. I guess real quick, we never we never actually remind people who we work for, so if you can, go to theathletic.com slash Sixers Beat, sign up, you can get 40% off, you can get access to all of our written content, you can get access to the other podcast a week. We would appreciate that. How you doing, Rich?
1: I'm good, man. Sixers aren't doing good, though.
0: No, and this is, you know, it's funny. I feel like... I feel like the game against Houston was a tipping point for a lot of people, which to be honest, of these four games in this four game losing streak and of the, you know, seven games they've lost here over the last 11 games, this was maybe the least egregious of them all. Like this is an expected performance. I think like the the way they played is sort of how I expected that game to play out. The struggles they had defensively were what I expected. The offensive struggles are what you have for a team that, struggles to space the floor this is a, a a loss that sort of goes according to plan like if, if Milwaukee came in to Houston and lost this game 118 to 108 nobody cares because Milwaukee has taken care of business in every other aspect Milwaukee didn't just lose to Orlando and Miami and the Pacers in completely non-competitive fashion in that last one so nobody cares but because this is the fourth game the seventh of the last 11 it is cause for a riot and I get that. The season has not, especially here over the last couple of weeks, gone according to plan. So we will dive into exactly why that is.
1: Yeah. Well, in that game, it's because James Harden is the best offensive player ever.
0: We start getting into comparing different errors and rules and, and all. It gets almost impossible. Certainly of this era. He is the best offensive player. One of the main takeaways I had was just, man, that is an easy offense to draw up. Like, we talk so much about this team and the struggle scoring. And just looking at the differences in their best offensive players of the two teams, the way he can manufacture, first of all, the way he can turn tough shots into good offense is just amazing. Like down the stretch, he made three or four shots. It's just like, you have no right even taking that shot. And he makes two step back threes in the final minutes of the game that could have swung the game. And he makes it look easy. He makes a, a, a bad shot for every other player in the league look like, yeah, that's good offense. And he does it so effortlessly, that's amazing. But second of all, he creates so many easy scoring opportunities for his teammates. Like, a lot of people were like, well, Joe got outplayed by Clint Capella. Like, Clint had 30 and Joe only had whatever. Well, yeah. But of those 12 baskets that Capella made, I bet you James Harden created nine of them. Yeah. With easy lobs, and some of the other three were getting beat down the court, which you can't have. But, like, James Harden spent the entire game in the middle of that floor, in the middle of the paint, and forcing Embiid to either fully commit, in which case the lob was there, or half commit, in which case either the floater or the lob was there. And that's why Clint Capella had a big night. It wasn't so much that Capella outplayed Embiid, as it was that uh, you know, Embiid doesn't have James Harden creating shots for him and forcing rotations. It is it is amazing watching that dude. And I know a lot of people don't like watching James Harden play basketball, and I get a little bit of that because he makes drawing fouls such an important part. Of his game, and he's so good at it that of course he's going to. Like, it's one of those things where, like, you can't hate the person doing it. Like, if you want something done, change the rules. But he's 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 so good. He's so fucking good. And it's just, as much as we want to talk about Embiid, an MVP and superstar, and look, when you start getting into two-way conversations, that's where Embiid makes up some of these grounds. Embiid is not that level of an offensive superstar. He's oh, not a top-five yeah. offensive player. And that makes, not only is it tougher to do a... Back to the basket. You know, like Embiid, even when he's forcing double teams, he's not creating shots at the rim for people. He's creating kick out kick out threes. It's so much harder to play with that style of an offensive player as your best player. And also Embiid's just not anywhere near Harden as an offensive player. It's just it's it was staggering watching that game.
1: Yep. I think it's right for you to point out the ease in how Harden operates as the main takeaway. It's uh it, it was really that's amazing. Why, that's
0: why when we spend so much time like talking about coaching. And look, we're going to get into some of that. Like, it's, it's, I, I get if you're frustrated that there's stagnation here, but it's just there's, there's like, and Mike D'Antoni, I think, is a really good coach. But that like is what unquestionably he has to work
1: with, an easier you know, thing to draw. A 100%. Up. Yeah.
0: It's, it's a different sport they're playing.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it's like almost playing with Peyton Manning as your quarterback, where he's the coach, basically out on the court, and, and he orchestrates absolutely everything. And it, it was remarkable to see, Josh Richardson, I think we would both agree, pretty good defender. Yep. Right? No chance. No shot. And it was, uh, you know, I actually thought Ben Simmons did a pretty good job. I, I went back and watched possessions. I had him at Harden hardened shot four of 10 when Simmons was the primary defender. And even then, he understood, well, okay, Ben Simmons is in the top one percentile of guys who can stick with me and make my step back. Three hard. I mean, the step back three is it's a complete game changer. You could be guarding him perfectly, and he's absolutely comfortable taking a shot with you all over him. Because a, you might make it, and b, if you get too close to him, you're probably going to foul.
0: Ninety nine percent of the league gets benched if they take that shot. (laughs) Like it's just absurd what he can make.
1: Yeah, I was uh I was thinking back to they played the Clippers earlier this year, and the team that has Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, and Patrick Beverly said, you know what, we're just going to double them over half court and play (laughs) three on four. (laughs) They're going to get a wide open three, probably a layup, even if they they do it correctly. But we'll take our chances with Westbrook screwing up a grade school fast break drill. Which, by the uh,
0: way, happened a lot.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I would consider doing that more often than just playing this guy straight up with two elite wing defenders are three if you count Beverly too. It's uh, it's insane how good he is. Now, so so with all that said, I think that was a very understandable loss. There were some bad parts of it too. You mentioned Capella, nine of those hoops were spoon-fed to him by Harden. That is true. Three of them were him just beating and beat down the floor. And, uh, you know, a day after... And Bede called out Simmons for the lack of a, a three point shot. And by the way, there was a uh, a classic Ben Simmons record scratch in the. Uh, qu- he catches it in the short corner, and yeah, he's not spaced properly, which it's bad. We'll keep saying it; it's not good. Um But for the most part, Ben Simmons played a great game, where his defense was very good on Harden, and just offensively, the Sixers found a uh, a nice little wrinkle where they switched him and Embiid up on the pick and roll, making Simmons a screener and Embiid the weak side cutter guy. And Simmons and Josh Richardson found some some chemistry there. And, and that's an interesting avenue for the Sixers starters to, to look at moving forward. Because, you know, I, I hear a lot that Joel Embiid – should be a better pick-and-roll player and if he had a better point guard. it's. I don't think it's quite that simple. I think Ben Simmons is clearly a better roller and screen setter than Embiid, and you saw that. He's just – Embiid is – he's a rare player in that he's so good at the post-ups, but I don't think you want to speed him up all that much. So that was good. And, and, and Ben Simmons played just generally a, a very good game, pushing the ball in transition and all of this. But, uh, you know, Sixers didn't shoot the ball well either. So so in a lot of ways, I would agree with you. That is a very understandable loss. I I think before the game, I would have told you, I think they're going to lose. All they got to do is try and keep it close. And for the most part, I think they did. That said, it still sucks after you lose four games in a row.
0: Right. The problem is it came after those previous nine games.
1: It's unbelievable how consequential I think that Orlando loss was.
0: The Orlando loss, and then also just not showing up for Indy. Like, in- Indy, if they show up and they this have is- Embiid, that's a game that you think they can win. So you have yeah. that Orlando loss, which they should have won, and that or the Indy game, which they just conceded, both because of Embiid not being available, but also just not caring. If it, if we're just talking about these Miami and Houston losses, like, okay, we move on with life.
1: This is a very tough stretch of three games, six are playing. And by the way, it's... Not getting any easier. They're playing a team at home that's one nine of ten tomorrow night. Sorry, Monday night, as uh, as I always screw up to date. Boston. And then they go to Dallas and back to Indiana. So this is not getting easier in the next week. And they have to weather the storm here because I mean they they, they need to start winning some games. But and, and and then after the game you have Embiid saying well, I actually think we should point out first, Brett Brown saying after the game, I liked our spirit in this one. I thought, you know, we we played hard. There were some mistakes. We didn't shoot the ball well. Not a perfect game by any means, but I did like our spirit. And I thought that was about right. But then you cut the Embiid, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes later saying, this sucks. I don't think we're getting any better. And uh, that's not great. No. <laughs> no, it's what,
0: not. Um... What, do you,
1: what do you think of, of Embiid? He, we've always described him as an emotional player, but the Sixers also haven't had too many downturns like this. Like, usually when they lose, it's been, oh man, they can't beat Boston in the regular season, but it's not a prolonged losing streak. He, uh, I, I'm a little worried about him right now with how poorly this team is playing because I don't think, I think he can sometimes be a little too emotional to handle that well.
0: Yeah, I think, I think it's tough because we haven't really seen too many instances that we can draw back on, but I worry a little bit that Joe might, he might sort of like make whatever wave you're on more pronounced good or bad. Like, I think the Sixers need somebody to really just like, you know, stand up and sort of get them back on course and, and, and infuse some confidence in them. And maybe behind closed doors, you can be a little bit, you know, more charged and a little more pointed. And Joe's not really that type of person behind closed doors either. Like he's he's he keeps to himself a little bit, and he'll he'll admit that he has admitted that really recently. He's not a rah rah guy in the locker room, you know. But I do worry that like his his, you know, kind of like mood swings almost might make situation worse. And he's still young. We haven't really seen too many instances where this would come into play. So we're sort of just going off of gut reaction but i agree with you like there's a point where like you've got to channel that emotion into some positive or at least productive energy and i think just like i I think finding that and again productive and positive aren't always the same thing but i wonder whether or not he's really like is this an instance where maybe a 30 year old indeed would be a little better equipped having gone through these battles before i don't i don't know i think it's a, a good question because i do you, you brought up the point about this isn't getting any easier and that's certainly true when you have a, a team come in with such high expectations, like, I, you know, I, I, I worry about how if they lose six of their next ten games, Ooh. how's everyone going to react? <laughs> not just fans, who, by the way, will absolutely lose their shit. I mean, it, their like, shit has the
1: already been lost, by the way.
0: Yes, yes, it is. It has been a fun couple of days on the interwebs and on Sixers Twitter and on Sixers Reddit, and it's not going to get any better until they start winning. But, you know, that doesn't really matter. But how, how the team internally reacts does. And I think it will be, a, you know, I, th- I think if there's a, a, it's up for a little bit of a debate. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, we're in uncharted territory right now. This team, I d- think the last time they've lost four games in a row was December 2017. A, a lot, lot of game. shit has happened since then. Yes, it has. And, and I think the, the biggest thing that has happened is that the expectations have changed. If you'll recall at that point,
0: what is it? Pressure creates diamonds. Isn't that the Andrew That's Bidenism? The Andrew, yeah. Andrew bynum It, it can also isn't. create other stuff too.
1: Yes, it can create uh, widespread panic throughout a fan base and calls for all sorts of trades and, and things we can get into later. But yeah, at that point, the Sixers' expectation was to just make the playoffs. So even though they were going through a really tough stretch in that December. By the way, 2017 pretty crazy year. And that they lost 9 of 10 in December.
0: Yeah. And they were the, like 14 and 18 at one point, weren't they?
1: Yeah. And they were the, and I believe that's, yeah, that's exactly when they got to 14 and 18. And then they were the number three seat. <laughs>
0: Won 52 games. Yep. And they had more at wins than Cleveland. With, and yeah. Yep.
1: And left fans slightly disappointed. They didn't make the NBA finals for, for good reason. It was a, it was a pretty crazy year. Yeah. The, the expectations are different now. Now it's, it's finals are bust and you know i, I guess when you, when you think about it through that lens the regular season doesn't matter quite as much but whew, man this is uh this is not a fun team to be talking about right
0: no, now No, the, the wins and losses don't matter quite as much but the quality of play does and they do not look like an nba finals cause they look like a five through ten you know top 10 caliber team much more than they look like an nba final team, which is what we'll get to in a bit you know, I did, I, I guess real quick, let's take one quick break and then we'll talk about a little more of the Rockets game. The playoffs are finally here. There's only a few more games left before the champ is crowned. Don't be caught saying wait till next year like 24 other teams. Get in on the action this weekend with the DraftKings Sportsbook app. With so much going on this week, they have great promotions running every day. From odds boost to free bets, DraftKings has it all. Plus, DraftKings Sportsbook is a safe and secure betting app. You can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. It's no wonder DraftKings Sportsbook is America's top-rated sportsbook app. And to top it all off, DraftKings Sportsbook is offering their best sign-up offer to date right now. You won't want to miss this. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code TOSS. For a limited time, all new users can get a sign-up bonus up to $1,000. That's right. DraftKings Sportsbook is going all out with a sign-up bonus up to $1,000. Don't forget, that's code T-O-S-S and get your sign-up bonus up to $1,000. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older. Pennsylvania only. In partnership with Meadows Racetrack and Casino. Bonus comprised of a first deposit bonus and a first bet match, each up to $500. Deposit bonus requires a 25-times playthrough. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And now back to the show. All right, so you brought up the Richardson... Simmons pick and roll. And I saw a lot of commentary online that, like, why did it take them so long to get to that? To pull that out of their bag of tricks. You know, I, th- I think they used that a lot the previous two years with Redick. Whether that's a pick and roll or dribble handoff, much of the same sort of stuff that, you know, that kind of make Ben a more, a, a bigger part of their half-court offense, punish people for not defending him. Do you think that's something they that can really scale up that much? Because I have sort of some thoughts on it. It certainly did look good against the Rockets, but is that something they can make sort of like a, a, a high-usage portion of their half-court offense?
1: I think it's something they can use as a change-up, and may, maybe even a little more than that in some games, but no, I don't think that's a you're going to run 20 of those plays, or f- 15 of those plays a game. Because I think there are a lot of easy ways to defend it. You can go under and make Josh Richardson beat you, which He might be able to beat you. He's what a 35% shooter from three, I think, this year. And I think for most of his career, he's been right around that mark. But he's certainly not a guy, especially if I've seen him miss a couple, that's going to scare me a lot to go under on. That's one thing you could do. You could switch. And I don't think Ben Simmons is going to post up even a decent defender. I mean, he'll try, but I don't think he'll do it all that well. So I don't think, you know, that was like, that's going to be a panacea. By any means, but you know, sometimes I think, uh, you know, I, I think when you compare it to the Richardson Embiid pick and roll, it provides a different element. It's faster, it's uh, you know, you have a better passer if you can get the ball to Simmons going downhill. Simmons is a better screen setter as well than Embiid. So, I, I do think I, I don't think it's like such an easy call. There's a reason why they didn't go to it all that much, but it. It does kind of mask Simmons' off ball actions because he can, uh, or off ball problems because, you know, he's in the action and he can pass the ball to Embiid. And I also do think that's that play that that side pick and roll. It also leads into a duck and play for Embiid on the post or, or on the opposite block that has been effective for the Sixers for a few years now. So there are ways to get him involved. The, uh, the other issue I would have with it besides the, uh, the ways you can defend the initial action is that I, I'm not sure the big man's going to be all that happy watching that, you know, a million times. So that's, uh, those are my scattered thoughts on it.
0: Yeah. I mean, like you, it, it it's one thing in a random regular season game, you can catch people off guard, especially when they don't want to really come out of their, you know, base defense. But you know, in that game, Josh Richardson was what, like two for 10, make him beat you go under, just make him beat you. And none of those actions behind that really matter. And...
1: Yeah, and what is he going to dribble into? A pull-up, fading, r- okay. mid-range so like if, jumper? If, if you're talking yeah. about
0: all of a sudden Ben Simmons becoming a, a dynamic half-court player, they will gladly give Josh Richardson that pull-up jumper over time. So I, I think... When it catches someone off guard, yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll work well. But when you have time to really game plan for it, I'm not sure it works quite... Like, if, if this was... I don't know, James Harden we're talking about or Dame Lillard we're talking about or even what they thought Markel Fultz would be. Yeah, sure. Great. That's a, a really good option. But when it's Josh Richardson as a primary creator in that spot, I'm just not sure it's going to scale the way a lot of people think it will. Like, I think yeah. Ben as a role man would scale, just not necessarily with that pairing. And also you have Joel Embiid, like you said, a probably not all that thrilled being a, you know, stuck in the dunker spot a lot. But also you have Al Horford on there with the starting lineup. He's just like,
1: standing in the corner.
0: Right, and like Al's not spacing like so. That spacing problem the Sixers have is going to come into play as well. Like that action, that two man Richardson Simmons action is never going to be as 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 good as it could be in this lineup. It's just this this team is not built to play off of that all that well. And also, you have your best player a post up big. So I think it's it, it worked great the other night. I'm not sure it scales as your sort of base offense uh which really i mean it, it talks it really speaks a lot to the team's offensive struggles where there's really no great combination of skill sets around either of your two best players skill sets there's there's it's just the, the fit is clunky and we'll talk about that from now until the end of time or at least for the next month
1: i'd still like to see it sprinkled in but yes. and i would also reiterate that if you have good enough defenders i would just switch that the simmons post up is bad offense so yeah. let them do it
0: I agree that any any scenario you can get sort of Ben's creativity involved in the half court, great. I'm just not sure that's going to result in those kind of looks, all that frequently.
1: Yeah. I, hey, look, but but sprinkled in a couple times per game. Seriously, it's it's not a bad play.
0: Yep. All right. Let's move off of the Houston loss for now to a little more high level. Holy shit! The trade deadline is in a month. Talk. You know, I think when we when they acquired. We'll start off with the uneasy question. When they acquired these five players, really when they when they re-signed Harris and acquired Horford and Richardson over the summer, and you had sort of like this base five, four of which are under long-term contracts this year and at least three more years, some, some longer, and then Richardson has next year left. We figured this was a starting five who would be here for a while, this was the starting five who could grow chemistry together and really learn how to play off of each other's skill sets. And now you're just sort of looking at pieces on the periphery, on improving your bench, which, by the way, has been dreadful lately. Like, the disappearance of Mike Scott has really hurt this team. Matisse Libel's injury has hurt this team. James Lance being out the Mike other Scott, night. Mike Scott, man. Yeah. <laughs> he Great is just, guy. He is, he he is he
1: completely lost right
0: now. He cannot buy a shot. And defensively, he does not know where to be. And the two of those things are not great for a role player. But then you add in James Ennis being out, and his bench is just, it's overmatched. Like, if you go back to that Houston game, the Sixers in the 16 minutes starting lineups were out together. Sixers outscored Houston. And that's a a great Houston team. Sixers held them to a 100 defensive rating when their starters were on the court. Like, that aspect of it is still working but they can't go to the, well, I mean, first of all, starting lineup can't score, which we've talked about before. And when they go to the bench, they don't really have any defenders off the bench right now. So not a, not a, not a great combination, but I guess a long winded way of asking, is this starting five still something they should be look, should they look to build off of this starting five or should they look to change this starting five?
1: Oh my God. That is an uncomfortable question. Um, so so there are a lot of reasons for and against wanting to change the starting five. I think the most obvious reason against – there there are two. I think as much as we criticize Horford, one of the main reasons he was brought in was to shore up the non-MB minutes. And, uh, you know, that has mostly happened in the regular season. I think he's still – I think it's plus 5.4 per 100 – on cleaning the glass, I look today. It has not always felt great defensively. Recently, he's had games where he's kind of looked hopeless playing that drop coverage. But for the most part, it looks it's been it's been pretty good. So that would be the first thing. But but the the more fundamental reason I would say uh, against breaking these guys up would be that how many different teams are you going to give Embiid and Simmons? You're going to give him a fifth different team in two years that would, that would be legitimately five teams in 2 years and yeah. at some point we can get mad at them about their lack of shooting or their poor conditioning or whatever how the hell are you supposed to be good when you're changing the main characters they're playing with every 2 months
0: it's yeah. just i mean it's it's a fair point
1: it is a fair point i don't and i don't know now the the reason's for wanting to change it up can they score i'm not sure they can score and you know what? It's funny. Before the Milwaukee game, Elton Brand had a press conference. And he said, you know, I, I don't think you need to take him at his word 100%. A GM's not going to be like, oh, yeah, we're scouring the trade market for Al Horford trades. It's not like he's going to give that away. But he talked about how he thought once this team played more, specifically the starting five, and they had a certain level of continuity, they would be able to grow. It's funny how that's worked out because for most of the season, they had not had all five guys together. And as soon as they got them all back, they've stunk. And they've stunk scoring. And it's a good question. And I I think when you look as much as I think the defense is slightly underachieved in the regular season, I think when you look at whether to break up the starting lineup or add to it, you have to ask that question. How are we going to be able to score? at the end of games? And do we do we have a bench player who we can stick in Al Horford spot realistically at the end of games if he is struggling? And let, let's not just say it's Horford. It could be – shit, it could be Simmons if if he's really struggling at the end of games. Can you find a player of that caliber, or does this fundamentally need to be broken up? I would lean towards no, that it does not need to be broken up. I think – in general, the Sixers are going to give a the coach and b this starting lineup a full year. But I mean, if if they continue to play this poorly, you do have to wonder if there is a breaking point at some time.
0: Yeah, I mean, I also, it, I also
1: don't know who you're trading for Horford. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he makes a lot. Of
0: money. Well, I mean, he makes a lot of money. Like the, the, that was a series of decisions they had to get right last summer. Like they, I think this this team this organization, was so focused on this is the last summer we're going to have cap space that I think they, you know, jumped the gun a lot. First the Jimmy trade, then the Tob- Tobias trade, then the Horford signing and the, and the, the the Josh Richardson, Jimmy Butler signing trade. And not that, like, not that those moves are indefensible, but I think there was such a a pressure to make a move while they still had this flexibility. And, First, first of all, like I agree, they need to shore up the center minutes, but you don't need to invest that many resources to do so. Al Horford needs to be able to play alongside Joel Embiid in order to make any sense. Definitely. And and besides Joel Embiid and and Ben Simmons and all the other pieces, and I think that's where the biggest like I think there's two things I'm really concerned about with that signing. First of all, it's that Al just doesn't look as good defensively as he frequently did in years past. I don't know how much of that is the injury. I don't know how much of that is, as you called it last podcast, and as people have called it over the last few years, Average Al that shows up in the middle of the season?
1: I didn't call it. I said what people
0: in the past... Right, right, right. I'm not not a Boston sports
1: radio host. Right, right. I'm worse.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know how much is that. I don't know how much is aging. I don't know how much we just now nitpick him every day of the season. But he has not been good enough defensively at the five. And the team as a whole is still succeeding in those lineups. But I worry the sustainability of that a little bit, especially for a team that is so streaky from the perimeter. Offensively, you know, this is something we brought up at the time. Yeah, he has a decent three-point percentages here year in and out, never been high volume. And when you restrict him to pretty much only catch the shoot, the fact that almost all of his shots are coming from the three-point line where he's not a high-volume shooter and we're trying to scale that up could become problematic. You know, I think Al at his best is not when he's relying on a three point shot, but when he uses that three point shot to set up his drives, to set up his passes. And he doesn't do that at the four next to Embiid like he did at the five in Boston. So I worry a little bit that offensively, you're never going to get the spacing from him or unlock maybe some of his strengths that make his other deficiencies in his game worthwhile. Like, I, I, worry, I worry quite a bit about that fit between those guys. And look, some of it's just Al not making shots. Like in the first two and a half months of the season, he was averaging 13, 14 a game, shooting 45% from the field and 35% from three. And lately he just, he, he can't do anything. And we can talk about his role and maybe he feels like he can do more. At the end of the day, he's got to make some shots. And I, I, think on? one, I wonder
1: what he's on post-ups right now. I don't think he's made a jump hook in three
0: weeks. <laughs> no, it doesn't feel like it. So, I mean that that it, like I said, it's great that they shorted up the backup center spot, but you don't pay you don't pay that you just don't pay that kind of money to a a backup center. He's got to work next to Embiid. He's got to work in those lineups, and right now he's just not, and that worries me a lot. You know, part of my concern is that the Sixers right now just don't have very many positive assets in a trade. Like if they do have to pivot, it's going to be really hard to do that without taking a substantially worse player. Like Al Horford is not a positive trade chip right now. Tobias Harris is, you you can find someone to take Tobias Harris because being able to get semi-efficient 20 point per game score is still very valued in this league. But like, I don't think like using him as a base to get like a star is going to be tough. You really have, and your draft picks are all late in terms of tradable chips without diving into your Embiid Simmons core. You have to start talking about Josh Richardson and Matisse Stiebel. Yeah. And that starts to get a little dicey. So Sixers don't have a lot of real flexibility in that regard. You know, so much of what we're talking about right now is going to be hypothetical. I guess, and the, the details of those hypotheticals will be really important in the, the conversation. But the question basically comes down to: Do you think they need to move on from Al Horford? And I wish I was a little more confident in saying no. It's it's a real tough question. Yeah. And that would even if you do move on to him, what do you have? You're not going to have any cap space. Like you have to actually take someone who is going to value him and also be able to get someone who fits and is a valuable player back in return. And that's really tough. It is. And and look, I I hope that over the next couple of weeks, Al turns it around, starts making shots, sort of gets back to where he was defensively at the five, and we can all go back to what we thought. But that fit right now does look much worse than than I think anyone would have even thought back in July.
1: Well, I think the reason it looks worse than back in July is because at this point, you would have hoped to have seen some growth. And you, you haven't. They, their fundamental question is how do they score with this starting lineup? They haven't answered it. Nope they they've answered how they'll score with the other lineups, but I mean, the, you know, you you brought these five guys in to play together. It's a it's it's a problem. I uh, so Here, here's, so the other thing too, like the
0: way I'll, I'll I'll phrase it, if you look at realistically, I think they could have had four players in that Al Horford slot. A keep Jimmy Butler. And there are reasons well beyond fit on the basketball court where that wouldn't have happened. B, Malcolm Brogdon, who signed a smaller contract. And, and there's no confirmation Brogdon wanted to come here. But there's also no conf- confirmation that the Sixers really looked into it. But Brogdon had his contract, which was like four years, $85 million, And he had to lose a draft pick or two as well. J.J. Redick and bringing him back or just not renouncing his his, his bird rights. And Al Horford. If you ask me to rank those right now in terms of fit, not not the basketball players, in terms of fit, I'm not sure Al Horford's not towards the bottom of that list. And that's scary. That's really scary for a guy you just gave four 109 to.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's what they're looking at right now. They're uh, you know, calling it clunky is is probably being nice. It's a bad fit right now that doesn't. Seem like there's a lot of options for, for Brett Brown to manufacture offense out of this group. And it's, uh, it's scary. And I, I understand the idea that, hey, maybe their defense will be better come playoff time and they'll just be suffocating. I be. And and I, I think it will be too, but oof, if, uh, if this is any indi- indication, the other end of the floor is going to be tough, man. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. and I, And you can, you can tell that To me, we talked about how Embiid is clearly frustrated after these games. I think he's really frustrated about how this fits. I think he's looking at it like, you know, we just had JJ and Jimmy who made my life easier. JJ because he would give me some easy looks. Jimmy because he would take some pressure off me at the end of games. Now we're saying, hey, uh, let's, uh, let's put this all on your plate, on my plate. And, uh, the ecosystem you're playing in, it's a lot harder, which is part of the reason why I think he not so subtly took a dig at Ben Simmons the other day for not spacing to the three point line. It's a, it's a great question. I don't know, you know, the, the continuity versus fit line where that is, but it's uh, a, it's certainly something that I'm not confident in in saying that the, the continuity is the right way to go at this point. It's, it's not it a slam-dunk answer.
0: No. And it is, you should start off with the starting point of a post-up big, which for a million different reasons is a tough starting point. And Joel is sort of that one talent in the league right now. Even even the other high-usage high, high usage big men. Like, Carl Anthony Towns isn't posting up like Joel Embiid is. He's got that face-up game that's almost unguardable for a big man. Chris Porzingis isn't posting up like Joel Embiid is. Like, there's no real big man <clears throat> who is running a style of offense like this. Joe Embiid is sort of like that one exception who can make this style somewhat plausible. But you start off with a, a, a starting point of a style of play that the league and the rule changes over the last couple of decades have pushed out. And you make it tougher now by a team that doesn't really fit around it. And part of that, like you were dealt a hand where, okay, Ben Simmons, a non-shooting point guard, was the best talent in that draft. So you take him and you you, you deal with it. But like then you've got a, another natural center who's a streaky outside shooter and wants to post up. And, a, you know, a big man who's sort of like a mid-range ISO scorer. And, you know, a ball handler in Josh Richardson, who's not a great ball handler, not a great shooter. And it's just like, it's, there's this team isn't designed to take advantage of either a post-up big or maybe a pick-and-roll big in any real capacity. And that's why, you know, I, I think we spent so much time in his preseason saying, like, well, this defense has to be, like, almost historically great for this to work. Yeah. It hasn't been.
1: And they're seventh, and that's how you lose four games in a row.
0: Right. And seventh is a good defense. It should be better. Like, I think the personnel, it should be better than that. And I, like I said, I think in the playoffs, it can ramp up. But is it going to be historically great? I don't know. And it really does need to be in order for this team to have a real chance of contention. And right now, they just don't look like a contender because it's not.
1: Yeah. Okay. So we've talked enough about Horford. Do we? we agree that he is the, from our standpoint, if we're running the Sixers, he would be the logical guy to trade? Yes. Do you, is there any sense though that maybe you could get? I don't think Harris is, is going to be traded A because of everything they gave up for him and then gave to him in free agency. But I also He's, think his scoring and his, his versatility, even though it's, you know, it's probably like B minus versatility or B versatility and not A plus, it's still important on this team.
0: Harris's biggest problem is there's not a better perimeter score.
1: Yeah. But but I, I also think that with his age and and his skill set it wouldn't make as much sense to move him as Horford. Now, the other question would be is there any sense in moving Richardson?
0: That is a interesting
1: be, question. because because look, by so many his,
0: reasons. Go ahead.
1: His his contract is good for the Sixers. That is a team-friendly deal for another year. I think he has an option two years from now. I would imagine if he continues at this pace, he would he decline it. He could
0: drop off by 30% and still decline that option. Yep.
1: Yeah, for sure. But they have him at a good salary for this year and next year. I don't think he's so- moving him the Horford problem with fit. But I also, like you said, not a great ball handler and not a great shooter. So I don't think he's really helping the fit by no. any means. So, no. is there a world in which you could find a better fit with maybe attaching—I don't know—some sort of asset if it's a late first-round pick or, or something like that, where maybe you would be able to to work around the Horford Embiid problems by finding just a better offensive player
0: on the Yeah, perimeter. I mean, it, it's 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 tough because, like you said, I don't think Richardson is the problem. Like, if, if I think the Simmons, Embiid, Horford fit offensively is much more the problem. If it was a more natural fit around Embiid, I think Richardson would be a really good piece. I think he is still a really good piece. The reason his name comes up is because he's got so much positive trade value on a team that right now just doesn't have a ton. Same reason why someone like Thiebel would come up. And again, I don't, I want to be clear about one thing. I'm not looking to trade Matisse Thiebel. Like I'm not really we, looking
1: to trade Josh Richardson either, but Right.
0: When we bring up these guys' names, it's not an indictment on them or whether or not you should want them on your team long term. It is a sort of an acknowledgement that, you know, Sixers front office did a good job scouting Fible, made the right selection, even we can get in the trade don't have to now. Selection was good. They developed him, Matisse put in the work, and the fact that he is a valued NBA player is a is, it's a not an indictment on him at all. In fact, it's a very positive statement. But there comes a point where like I'm now sort of of the mindset, like do they need sort of like that third star still like all that star hunting? Have we come up short? Have we come up with not only short, but with pieces that don't fit. And if that becomes available, like is Richardson, someone Richardson viable draft picks, is that something you can parlay into a, a third star or quasi star that just fits? Yeah. And, and, then, that's, you, uh, and then you
1: it, have a really thin team though.
0: Oh, Oof. well you, you pretty much discount contending this year. Because you just don't have the depth. They Probably don't have the depth right now. Like we're we're sort of like at this crossroads where you ask, should you look to address some of the periphery pieces so you can contend with this starting five? Or do you need to question whether or not this starting five can become that championship core? And it's a very uncomfortable question to be having. It's one that I wasn't entirely expecting to be having. But I I don't know. I'm glad that we have another month to watch this play out. To see whether or not "quote unquote" average Al can return to being good Al, and maybe the fit can look a little more natural. I still really like Al Horford as a player. Like I like him in terms of his shooting and his passing and his smarts and his communication and his his, his positional defense. Like I like all of that. I'm just I I've, I'm questioning very much whether or not this is the right team for his skill sets and whether or not they can bring out the best version of him. And also a little bit like he is 34. That worries me.
1: Okay. So so let's say they do keep the team together. Let's say the better version of Al comes back and we're feeling a little better about this team in a couple of weeks. If they were to go to the bench and look to upgrade that spot. Can they find a player who can maybe play at the end of games sometimes in Ooh. in the trade market? I see that that's why I think this is hard because I'm not sure you're able to do that without dipping into your starting lineup.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that that's where you really start talking about, you know, uncomfortable conversations with regard to Matisse Thiebel. It is, it's, it's a fair question. It's why I'm not really sure if I'm hundred percent ready to answer. A lot of it depends on who will be, you know, available. Like I know Mike recently brought up Bogdanovich. That would be a, uh, an interesting addition just because you need that unconscious sniper.
1: And he that could... would be pretty good. If you could get him, I think he's kind of the exact midpoint between Tobias and Bellinelli, right? Well, one guy is a starter and, and a complimentary player that you'd have to give up a ton for. The other guy is a buyout guy who by the second round of the playoffs, you know why he's a buyout guy.
0: Right. Right. That's a that's a good, that's a good one. It is. It's a really good question. It's a really, I, I, my gut says it's going to be tough to find somebody like that. And, 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 you know, if Al Horford's on the bench in crunch time a lot, like, I mean, Al's a consummate pro, but is there a breaking point in that? I don't know. I'll probably not, but like, it's a question you have to ask having somebody of that caliber come in would be tough, but I
1: think also are they bad defensively because your whole identity is shot. If it's a Bell and Ellie type, yeah, I mean, you, you it, just it, saw it in the Houston game. Harden literally finds the worst defender on the team, and they they uh the player who that defender is guarding will just screen for him as many times it takes to either get a you know an opening or a switch, and then that's all it is. It, yeah. It's it's that simple. And obviously, Harden, like we said as we started the podcast, best offensive player in the league. He can. Probably him and LeBron are the two people who do that better than anybody in in terms of hunting the mismatch. But, you know, you you see as good as Trey Burke's ball handling can be sometimes on this team, he is the prime example of somebody who will just be hunted mercilessly in a playoff game. And the Sixers' identity when they form this, you know, this gigantic starting lineup is that they were the team you couldn't hunt defensively. So how does that change?
0: Yeah, and sort of like the other main concern is they just don't have a ton of salary to send back. Like, you've got yeah. Mike Scott at a little under 5000000 million. You've got Zaire Smith a little over $3 million. And then you can add $5 million on top of that. You know, and even like someone like, let's say, Patty Mills. Add another ball handler, a little better defender than what you have. Even he's up in a $12, $13 million range. Like, they just have a real tough time matching salary for even, you know, good upgrades, but not, not star-level upgrades. So it's going to be, it's going to be, they really need to play, have a couple of weeks of good play here where you get a solid understanding of what they have to work with and what you're willing to move on from. Because right now is probably the wrong time to be having this podcast and this discussion because right now it's like, fuck it, trade everybody. And that's never a good starting point for uh, decision making, but yeah, we'll see. We'll see.
1: I mean, the the key is to never get too high or too low. Unfortunately, this team makes you do that <laughs> yes, more than anybody in the league, so... They, you know, it's kind of like I said last podcast. Yeah, they they can make you sound stupid at some point, but man, do they deserve to be. (laughs) We deserve, like, you should have conversations like that about this team right now because they are completely puzzling. And and I'm not sure how you necessarily fix their fundamental flaw.
0: Nope. And then there's also the large-scale question of, at some point, you have to worry about whether your two-stars don't really... Compliment each other offensively, which we barely I, even talk I like about that. It. We
1: didn't talk about that, but I think that's a conversation to be had next year, year after. Like I, I, I said, think good. I, you...
0: I would love to just see those two paired with a real live dribble guard who can maybe make everything sort of mesh like a Kemba Walker, Dame Lillard, like that kind of just, we're, we could have that conversation with Ben in the, the pick and roll as a role man, as a short role guy, a little more truthfully than with Josh Richardson, where you wouldn't have this glaring lack of perimeter shot creation. And Ben Simmons just being a spot up guy would actually solve. Cause right now, like spotting up Ben Simmons doesn't solve it because you still have nobody to really create. So it would be, it'd be great to have that conversation. It, there's still a part of me. That's like, these guys are so fucking young. Like <laughs> there's so if Ben Simmons just becomes a spot up guy, real competent spot up guy and you can get another creator then this team could just shoot through the roof and don't overreact to problems right now. But then again, he has to actually fucking take the shot. So I don't know. Yeah. Fun times, fun podcast. I always enjoy talking about this basketball team.
1: Good talk. You know what though? I I do think the uncomfortable trade talks were still more fun to have than talking about how shitty this team is playing right now.
0: Yeah, no, I don't want to, I don't want to talk like, If I had to talk about that indie game again, I'd lose my mind. Yep.
1: There's only so many times I can say Mike Scott needs to hit a shot. And yeah.
0: Yep. All right. Let's cut it off there before we ramble. Thank you, Rich, for jumping on and we will talk to you soon.
1: See you, man.